לא But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Yaakov did not send with his brothers, for he said, or he thought, lest misfortune overtake him, a son. So right away, it's interesting that Yaakov, when he speaks to his children, sure, in the first verse of the chapter, called Bana, his children. Um, later on in the chapter, uh, when they go down to Egypt, uh, Bayovo Bnei Yisrael, in verse number five, they're called Bnei Yisrael. The sons of Israel went down, betocha ba'im, in together with all those other people that were going down to get food, they also went down there. There they're called Bnei Yisrael. In the very first verse, they're called Banav, Bnei Yaakov, Bayomi Yaakov Banav. And here in verse number three, asara. So the point here, I will make a simple point that what the Torah is doing here, as it often does, is setting up the story. These 10 sons of Yaakov are also Joseph's brothers. Now Rashi has a certain, and Rashi in general, and here in particular, tries to put the best possible face on it. And Rashi makes the claim, which for the life of me, I don't see in the text at all. Rashi makes the claim that the brothers are already thinking about Joseph. Maybe Joseph is down there. They're already thinking, maybe they can encounter Joseph, bring him back, reconnect and all that. 
I must say that personally, I see that not, not, not one shred of evidence that that's the case, quite the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. That they go down, as the Torah says, that uh, in verse number five, they're coming down with all the others. Like all the other people are going down to get food. They're going down to get food. And there's no sense whatsoever. And why would there be? that Joseph can be found in the land of Egypt. It's a big place. And it's been quite a number of years on top of it. So at least 13 years, actually 20 years, it's been 20 years. So why would they even think in those terms? But, but here's the but, but the Torah though, so the narrative voice right over here wants us to focus on this issue of brother. And it does so in three different ways in this verse. It says, Yosef in verse number six, Yosef so Joseph is the ruler of the shalit. He's the one who parcels out the food or determines who gets food. So Joseph's brothers came down and they bowed down to Joseph. Now, previously it said that Yaakov, the 10 brothers of Joseph went down in verse number three. But Jacob does not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother together with Echad, his brothers. So right there, you see something interesting, that the Torah calls the 10 sons of Jacob, Joseph's brothers. But then it singles out Benjamin as he didn't send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, for he thought, he was afraid, lest misfortune overtake him. So clearly that's linking it to the experience of Yosef being sent out and never returning. I would add that on top of that, which probably Yaakov was thinking clearly that he only has one son left. He says explicitly later, only one of Rachel's children left. The last one sent out, never returned. He's concerned that the same thing might happen to Binyamin. Does he suspect something? Who knows? Maybe he suspects more than that. But the point is that um, Joseph, the word son does not appear in terms of Joseph, what happens to Joseph. But Let's not forget that Joseph's wife is named Osnat. So Osnat is so related to the word Oson, if not etymologically related, it's related. And one might say, from the narrative's perspective, from the Bible's perspective, Oson has overtaken Joseph. He's now fully ensconced in the court of Pharaoh, married to the daughter of a high priest of Egypt. So the, my point here is, and this, I think, is where the ancients and the moderns deviate to some extent. And that is that what the moderns understand very well is that there's more than one voice in the text, that the characters speaking, they're what the characters think. And then there's a voice that speaks to us, apart from the characters. In other words, yes, the Torah is saying the brothers are going down to encounter Joseph. But not that the brothers know that. When you read some of the classical Mepharshim, like Rashi, Rashi seems always to somehow conflate those two, but they're very different. They have no clue that Joseph is there. Why would they? But, or that they will encounter him down there, or that he's still alive, or whatever. Who knows? They're not even sure he's alive, assuming they didn't actually sell him. So the point is, there are different voices over here. And what the Torah is saying, on one hand, is they are his brothers. But so is Benjamin, a brother. He's a special brother. And they're called B'nai Yaakov. They're called Achei Yosef. And then we, we come to verse number five, 
So it's interesting, in general, the bigger discussion, where the Torah calls Yaakov Yaakov, and where the Torah refers to Yaakov as Israel. There are many Torah switches back and forth all the time, and I don't think it's just for the purpose of somehow variety. There is that as well. But in general, the name Yisrael appears in the Joseph narrative at moments of great significance. And this is a moment of great significance because the brothers going down to Egypt encountering Joseph uh, is, is really the beginning of the brothers ending up in the land of Egypt. Israel ending up in the land of Egypt, the beginning of the bondage for those many years, the fulfillment of the covenantal destiny, its punishment and its fulfillment of destiny. So therefore, when the brothers go down, suddenly the Torah switches to B'nai Yisrael. So they're coming from their perspective with all the others. People go down there. But we know, because the Torah is dropping hints already, that it's not really only about that. It's about Joseph. It's about the relationship. It's about Benjamin. It's about B'nai Yisrael. It's about the exile. All of these things at the same time. Right. Let's pick up with verse number six. And I'll stop and take comments and questions. Joseph is the shalit. Now the word shalit, we could translate as ruler. There is something interesting over here. And I, I, will, I will make the statement without discussion. And that is, I mentioned that the Joseph story just feels different. It's a different kind of a story. It reads like a novel or no novella. And apart from that, there's something else curious about the Joseph story. There, there are several words in the Joseph story that appear virtually no other place. Now let's take, for example, the word shalit. The word shalit does appear elsewhere in the Bible. But to the best of my knowledge, it appears in the much later books of the Bible. It appears in, in uh, Megillah and Esther, which of course plays off the Joseph story. Um, uh, in the war of the Haman's army against the Jews, the Jews are victorious. They dominate. The, the, the Haman thought, the friends of Haman, the armies of Haman thought that they would be so weighed by Yehudim. It appears also in Kohelet, much later book. Ramelech, Shilton, etc. Outside of that, to the best of my knowledge, it appears no place at all elsewhere. It's a strange thing to have this word here. Beit HaSohar appears no other place. Um, Amtachat, the sacks, Amtachat, is a word that only appears in the Joseph story. So that's very curious that there are all kinds of words that appear only here. It certainly underscores what I think is fairly obvious when you read, this story seems totally different. And the McGill is based on it, but it feels very, it's a different kind of story. Having said all that, it's a story that is fully integrated into the rest of Sefer Breshi without question. The idea, and I'm not only referring to Yehuda Vitama, which is played off in so many ways, as we will see. The idea that Yehuda Vitama is almost a standalone story. It's a piece of madness, actually. But it's more than that. It actually plays into all of Sefer Breshi. We should never forget that the book of, that the Joseph narrative is the conclusion of the book of Genesis. And therefore it would make perfect sense 
And I think it can be demonstrated that the Joseph narrative, and we'll see this when we resume our studies, uh, has so many connections to Sefer Breshit in general, not just to, it's not a standalone piece of the last 13 chapters, but has all kinds of literary links and very deep connections to everything that precedes it. So we'll see that. And, it, and as such, it's a very fitting conclusion to, to the book. In any event, Joseph is the Shalit. He's the Mashbir. And here we have, and the brothers came and bowed down to Joseph. Here we have a very important disagreement between Rashi and the Ramban. Very important. Here's what here's the here's the Mahokid Rashi and the Ramban. This is critical. Rashi has a comment that when the brothers bowed down to Joseph, this was a fulfillment of, of the dreams. Remember Joseph's first dream that we are binding sheaves in the field, my sheep stood up and the other sheaves fell to the ground. And your sheaves, uh, and your sheaves, they rose up and then they all bowed down. Lishtachavot is to fall down to the ground. I'm standing up and you're all on the ground. That was Joseph's first dream, which did not sit well with the brothers, of course. And, the, and Rashi says, here we have a fulfillment. The dreams are true because they're bowing down. That's Rashi. Says the Ramban, I believe it's exactly the opposite. Opposite. What Rashi says is exactly wrong. 180 is wrong, totally opposite. What, what Joseph realized was on the contrary, that the dreams were not fulfilled. When they bow down to him, he realizes the dreams are not fulfilled because if you remember that because in, this, in, the, in the second dream, the first dream doesn't, he's not clear who he's talking to his brothers in the first dream, but there's no numbers given in the first dream. But in the second dream, in the second dream, um, that's the dream where the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to him. So maybe, could be that this is a fulfillment of the first dream. That's possible. But the Ramban says the key point is the opposite. What Joseph realizes is that the dreams were not fulfilled. Because in the second dream, it's 11 stars and not 10. And the second dream, it's also the sun and the moon. So if we assume that, and Yaakov said to Joseph, remember what Yaakov said, what are you talking about? Are your brothers and me and your mother gonna bow down to you? Let's leave the mother out of the question now. But, but Yaakov assumes the son is, is Jacob. So the Ramban says Joseph realizes the opposite, that maybe the first dream might have been fulfilled, but the second dream of the 11 stars are not fulfilled. And the Ramban says, and that is the key to the Joseph story. Because what Joseph is going to manipulate, what Joseph has to manipulate in order for the dreams to be true. One might ask, why must they be true? Okay, because he sees that as part of God's ordained plan. That's what the Ramban would say. So he says, actually. So therefore, he has to somehow arrange it. He has to get two, two more people down to Egypt to fulfill the dreams. First, he has to get his brother down, so 11 can bow down and not 10, because there are 11 stars in the second dream. And then he's got to somehow manipulate it that the old father, Jacob, comes down and bows down as well. In point of fact, that is what happens in the story. In point of fact, he does maneuver Benjamin down uh, initially, 
to come down. And after that happens, they all bow down, including Benjamin, all 11. And then he gets the brothers to bring Jacob and the whole family down. And, and does Jacob bow down to Joseph is the question. Does Jacob bow down to Joseph? Obviously, the answer must be yes, of course. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fulfilled. But he does bow down. But let me just uh, point out something about where Jacob bowed down, bows down to Joseph. Jacob bowed down to Joseph, bows down to Joseph. It's actually in Parshat Vayichi. We're told that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And he lives a grand total of 100 and was 137 years, 147 years, 147. And he speaks to Joseph. He calls Joseph in. He says, I want you to swear to me that you will not bury me in the land of, of, of Egypt. Uh, first, he says, I want you to put your hand under my thigh. I want you to, to um, permit, to promise me or whatever. Do me a chesed vehmet, do me a kindness. I want you to, um, to not bury me in the land of Egypt, but rather bury me in my ancestral plot with, my, with the others, Avram, Yisrael, whatever. And Joseph says, chapter 47, verse number 30, says Joseph, I will do it. I will do it. Joseph says, yes, I'll do it, Father, as you say. And after Joseph says he will do it, Jacob says, okay, now swear to me you'll do it. I want you to swear you'll do it. And Joseph swears, so Jacob bowed down on the head of the bed. He's bedridden. He's in bed, probably props himself up. He instructs Joseph. He requests from Joseph, Father, I'll do exactly what you say. Now swear. Joseph swears and Jacob bows down. So something very interesting about Jacob's bowing down to Joseph, because normally when you bow down, to someone, it's a sign of your subservience. But of course, the story there is exactly the opposite. <laughs> it's, it's quite the opposite. I want you to do this for me, son. Father, I will do as you say. You will, huh? Swear you'll do it. Now, why he needs an oath? Why he needs the oath is a very good question. We'll discuss it someday in the future, I hope. But the point is, he imposes an oath on his son. And by the way, the imposition of the oath on someone else is typically from the superior to the inferior, it's never the other way around. So here he says, I want you to swear, and Joseph swears. It doesn't simply impose it, Joseph does swear, but he instructs him. At that point, Jacob bows down. So it's actually very interesting. He bows down, yes, but the context in which he bows down is not about Jacob's subservience to Joseph, it's quite the opposite. It's about Joseph doing the bidding of, of, his, of, his, of his old father. And the story that follows, Menashe and Ephraim, follows along exactly the same course. Joseph has one idea, Jacob has a different idea. At the end of the day, it's Jacob's idea and Jacob's behavior, which, 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 carries, which carries the day, and not Joseph. In any event, we'll get back to the Ramban. The Ramban says, the key to understanding the Joseph story, because the Ramban says, otherwise we can't understand Joseph. Who, who actually behaves this way? 
because he tortures his brothers. And then forget torturing the brothers. What about his old father? Why does he torture his old father? He's in mourning all of these years. And he puts in the essence and Benjamin and the whole story. How can one justify that? So the Ramban says, the only way I, ju I justify it is that Joseph sees himself as acting out God's, God's plan. He's, he's God's agent. God speaks through Joseph, one might say. And Joseph is, in fact, making sure that these dreams actually happen because he sees that it's God's will, etc. That's the Ramban. You take it, leave it, or whatever. But that's the Ramban. Very important Ramban. And he addresses the core question, what is Joseph's motive in all of these manipulations that we will see? That's the next series of sessions. How Joseph maneuvers events. So the, this is the famous Ramban over here of the brothers bowing down. And the Ramban says he realized they weren't fulfilled. Maybe the first dream was fulfilled, but not the second. Okay. Uh, let me stop here for one moment and take comments or questions, and then we will proceed. Uh, if anybody has a comment, question, or whatever, please. It's, pretty quiet. it's been pretty quiet in the chat. Quiet. Okay. Can I can I just remark? Speak. Although I I know you don't like this kind of remarks, but if you think about all Hamisha Chumshei Torah, this is the only part which has a, sen, a feeling of a novella, as we talked about. And I just wanted to say that there is such a novella in ancient Egyptian literature. The hero is called Sinuhe, if I pronounce the, the name correctly. And this is a person who is clever and uh, fulfills few challenges and he knows things which others don't know. And he ends up to be a viceroy of the Pharaoh of Mitzrayim. So this kind of, uh, of novella is, is already known in the, I don't know, uh, before the Yosef story in Egyptian. So maybe that's why it has this special developed uh, structure to it. Look, it's, there's no question in my mind in any event, when you start, read the Chumash, for example, and you read the beginning of Breshit, and you read stories about a flood. We know there are dozens of stories about floods, some of which actually are, are quite similar in very striking ways to the story of Noah, sending okay. the birds, the sacrifice. That's clear. I mean, anybody who, and this is not my area of expertise, but even I know something about these texts, and it's obvious that there's a connection there. Kasuto's point was that the Torah is actually responding to them. And is you know Torah has a different way of seeing it, and Torah has a certain point about you know the in the flood for example, the gods have some kind of internal dispute or whatever it is, and they put the human beings to to the to the to the test. Um, for the Chumash, it never is that way. It's, it's always an ethical. That's one of Kasuto's points. So of course there's a response that there existed that that this is not the first such novella, or it doesn't have very similar kind of stories. Such as Miguel and Esther is, of course, much later, but it's a very similar. Someone rises from obscurity, there it's unbeknownst to, I mean, it's a very similar story. It's about living in exile, it's about somehow uh, the issue of, of one of the core issues of the Joseph story that we've touched upon several times and will continue to is, because it's, to me, it's right at the center of the story Joseph's identity. Who is he? 
To what extent is he a Jew? To what extent is he an Egyptian? That's what the heart, that's what the story is about. And the Megillah, of course, is about that, about Jewish identity in a, in a, in a, in a foreign land and a hostile land, I would add. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were many other such novellas. Having said that, I'm not familiar with the other novella, but yes, I do think Hello? it read this, it sounds like it's, 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 it feels different. Let's put it that way. It's a, you feel, it feels different. Language is different, theme is different, etc. Whether other such novella existed before it, I wouldn't be surprised if the answer were yes. But the point is that the Joseph story, I want to repeat this, is fully integrated into the book of Genesis. It's not just a standalone piece. It may feel different, but at the end of the day, the themes and the, many of the words and the language are fully integrated. So it is, I mean, it's a phenomenal piece of work, but it's also really, a, it is a, we shouldn't forget, it's, it is a, a conclusion to the story of Genesis. So I'm going to come back to that many, many times. We thank you for that point. That's an important it point. It actually takes half of the book, if I'm not exaggerating. I would say about a quarter of the book, but yeah, it's a quarter of it. the book is 50 chapters, but 14 of Joseph. So, you know. by the way, if I can add something, being an expert on these founding legends, usually when the hero is in uh, somebody who immigrates to, to a new country, the sign of him being um, part of the new culture is marrying a local um, uh, woman. So the fact that yourself, I mean, the, the narrator talks about yourself marrying somebody Egyptian, this is always repeating itself in this kind of story. Okay. All right. Let, very, does anybody else have any comment here? We'll move on. Anybody else? Okay. If not, we'll, we can always speak up. Let me just, let's, let's pick up the story. Now, now, we're up to verse number seven of chapter 42. Before that, I, I just had a thought I want to mention, just a thought, food for thought. And um, what struck me was the following. It's a verse that we read last week when Joseph is gathering all the food in the land of Egypt. It's a food for thought. So just something to think about. It says that Joseph was gather, gathering all the food at the end of the previous chapter. It's actually verse number 49 in the previous chapter. Joseph gathered by its bar, Yosef bar, by its bar. And then he says, How much did he gather? Like the sand of the seashore. Much, very much. He stopped counting because it, it was beyond the numbers. There's no number, it's, it's, you can't count it. At the time, I made the comment that this verse, which talks about the food that Joseph collects in the land of Egypt being like this whole hayam on one hand, right? Reminds us of the blessing to, of, the, of the patriarchs that your descendants will be like the whole hayam, the Akedah, that's what God says to Abraham. And the second half of the verse, um, that reminds us of what God said to Abraham in chapter 15. Go outside. Count the stars. Can you number the stars? And that's the other blessing that we have in about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your descendants will be 
like the stars of, of the stars of heaven. So the sand of the seashore is one phrase, and the other one is the stars of heaven. And over here, my comment was that these two, one might say, covenantal terms, but the context of them with Joseph is not about his own particular covenantal destiny at this point, but rather how much food he brings into the Egyptian storehouses. That, that was the comment last week. I was thinking about this verse actually last night, and something struck me about this verse. So I haven't thought this through fully, but something to think about. And that is the verb spar, to count. Now the verb, the verb to count, actually even uh, in, uh, in, uh, in English, we have the same thing. When you go to a bank, now they have machines in every bank, but in the old days, they still have a few people that work in the bank. What do we call those people? Tellers. We call them tellers, right? So the, why, why are they tellers? Because what is, the, what is the job of a teller? The job of a teller is to uh, count the money. They count out the money and they give you money. So to tell actually has a double meaning. It means to tell a story, right? It also means to count, to count a number. Now Hebrew is the same thing. Le saper is to tell a story. But a mispar is a number, right? Le spar is to count. So what struck me, that's, that's clear. Now what struck me was this. In the Joseph story, I don't think this is a coincidence. In the Joseph story, the verb uh, was saper, to, to, to tell the story, appears a few times. For example, in the Joseph, we, let's talk about Joseph's dreams. In the first set of two dreams, right? In the first dream, he says to his brothers, we are standing in the field, sheaving the sheaves. My sheep stood up and your sheep bowed down. So in that dream, Joseph had a dream, he told his brothers, but when he had, then he has a second dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to me. There the Torah says, He told, So the second dream actually has a number in it, 11. So that the Torah says, To underscore the number. And the same thing is true, actually, when he's in jail. When they ask, he, he sees the, the baker and the butler or whatever, and they're very upset. And um, says, what's the problem? We have a dream and no one, and, and we don't understand what it means. Says Joseph to them, tell me the dream, and in both of those dreams, it's about the numbers. In each of the dreams, it's about the three, right? Which Joseph interprets to mean three days, Pharaoh's birthday, etc. So it is very interesting actually that the Torah the Torah seems to connect with Saper on one hand with the number. I mentioned this just because we have already seen the degree to which numbers are significant in the entire Joseph narrative. It constantly, number seven repeats over and over again. The number five, as we'll see, is constantly repeated. The number 10, the number three, it's constant. So I, just to reflect on this, what is actually the why is this? This is a, a very significant feature of the Joseph story, and what is that actually about? Um, yeah. So uh, let's continue now. So just to, just to bear that thought in mind, let's 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 continue. Um, okay. So we're up to chapter forty-two now. 
the brothers have now appeared before Joseph. And now, Joseph sees his brothers and he recognizes them. That's another interesting word, which we'll come to. Very important word. It appeared earlier in, the, in, in, in our story, both when the brothers bring Joseph's coat to, to Jacob, bloodied coat. Father, do you recognize this? And it appeared in the story of Jacob and Isaac, below Hikiro, when, Isaac, when Jacob disguises himself. And it appears in the story of Judah and Tamar. And now it appears once again. We'll have to link these stories, not for now. We'll link them. But in any event, the Torah says that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. In verse number seven, related to the word nachri. Nachri is a foreigner or an other. So he acted like towards them as, as a foreigner, as, as an other, a nachri, right? Play on lahakir on one hand and bayit nakir on the other. And he says to them, uh, he speaks harshly to them. From where are you? And let me come back to that verse in a second, but I want to make a different point about that. This, this verse about the word vayitna care. Because vayitna care, of course, plays off the hakir. Here he's pretending he knows who they are, but he's pretending that he doesn't. He treats them as foreigners. And beyond that, he's foreigners about, about whom we are suspicious. But actually, vayitna care plays off a different word. What word does it play off? Who knows? Different word, very important and, and very significant here, actually. Nechal? Guessing here, well, this is not a guess. Of this, Rabbi, uh, nachri. Nachri? Nachri is, is the word, right. He acts like a nachri, of course. That's mm -hmm. what it means. Mm -hmm. But it plays off something else. I'll tell you what it is. Lahakil? Isn't it not care when you take someone's eyes out? No, that's with a kuf, not a cuff. Oh, that's with a kuf. That's with a kuf. No, it replays off a different. It's when the brothers see Joseph. Here, Joseph sees his brothers. But what about the story when the brothers see Joseph? And that is when Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. And he sends, he sends Joseph to Shechem, and the brothers have left Shechem. And some mysterious person says, oh, they've gone to a different place, the Dotan. And Joseph seeking his brothers. He says, what are you looking for? I'm searching for my brothers. He's searching for his brothers. They saw him from a distance. And before he could come to them, right? Now we all know that in the ancient the Near East, the Resh and the Lamed are often are, are two connected letters. So actually, apart from Bahakir, plays off the, the, the idea we, uh, uh, to be a, 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 in modern Hebrew, a nocheo, uh, which appears also in the Bible. A nocheo is someone who is a conniver, a crooked person, a nocheo. So when they saw him from a distance, they didn't wait for him to come and, and talk to, to them. They conspired against him from a distance. They decide to kill him. They throw him into the pits. They take off his coat, et cetera, et cetera. And now, so the, the point I'm making is that 
one has to take into account what Joseph does to the brothers. Yes, you must take into account the strong possibility. To me, it's self-evident that part of what's going on over here is payback for what they did to him. I'm not saying that revenge is his only motive, but revenge, he might say not revenge, but justice, one could call it justice. Mida connected Mida, quid pro quo. They were Vayitna Kurula Hamito, and now he, he's not going to kill them, but he certainly threatens to kill them. And Vayitna Kerahalehem, he pretends he doesn't know them. Now, there's something else very interesting. He says, he spoke to them harshly, and he says, from where do you come? Where, from where do you come? Now, the truth of the matter is, the Torah hadn't said he spoke to them harshly, and someone walks into your, your someone knocks on your door, and says, what, and says, hello, I might say, who are you? Like, where are you from? Why are you here, right? But what's curious is, of course, we can't hear the voice. He spoke to them harshly. So may I invite them from where are you? I mean, it's hostile, certainly, in the sense that when we ask somebody a question and we know the answer, it's not really a question, right? When God, when God asks questions, they're almost, almost always hostile questions. Where is your brother, Kai? God knows where the brother is. Adam, Ayeka can be read in the same way. Where are you? Are you hiding over there? What, what's going on here? So, because God knows. So those, those are kind of rhetorical questions, not really questions. And um, so may I in, may I in Bata, right? Where, where, where are you coming from? That can be seen as hostile. We know it's hostile because he knows who they are. But I think even in the Pasuk, you get a sense that the brothers hear, hear some hostility because they don't answer just the question. It says, where are you from? Oh, we have people from all over the world coming to us. Hey, where, where, where are you from? You're from Mesopotamia, you're from the north, you're from Canaan, where, where are you from? But when the brothers answer Joseph, they say, we've come from the land of Canaan to get food, which suggests that they're hearing, of course, to get food. The whole world comes to get food which suggests they're hearing in the question something else, which is why are you here? That is some kind of, isn't it obvious to get food? No, in the way this guy's phrasing the question suggests that he suspects us of something else. And we'll see this. So already in, the, already in their response, when, they, when people add information, in general, that's a bad idea to do, but when people add information, there's something about it. Why are you giving me more information? Is it is it, Often it's some kind of self-protection, right? You have it in, this, in many other stories in the Bible. Can't get into that now. But anyway, Ereskan Wishbar Ochel. So now Joseph says to them, Joseph says, before Joseph says, that again, the biblical narrator tells us, Joseph recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. Now we can easily understand why. It's not hard to understand. First of all, they're 10 of them. And he's just one person. They're coming as a group of 10. So he sees the group. But of course, but the 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 um the Gemara makes the comment he left, he left when he was clean shaven and now he has a beard. Fine. It's funny to say that because I would have said exactly the opposite. He left with a beard and now he has no beard because when he stands in front of Pharaoh, he shaves, it says. I would have said the opposite. Fine, whatever, leave that out. But there's something else here about, you know, sometimes this happens, I'll say personally, in my life sometimes, 
Sometimes I meet people. Maybe we were in yeshiva together 50 years ago, you know? And people life, people have different tra trajectories in life, you know? Sometimes you meet somebody 50 years later and they're exactly more or less <laughs> where, where you left them 50 years ago. Their life, they have a certain path, they have a certain place, they really didn't leave the place. It's not a critique, I'm just saying there are people who just stay in one place. Then there are other people who, for any number of reasons, good, bad, and indifferent, have moved to different places and, and, and they're not in the same place, actually. And that's the story of Joseph and his brothers. As far as we know, the brothers are in the same place. They were shepherds 50 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. They're still shepherds. They're still, what has happened to the brothers? Things may happen to them, but we have no idea because the Torah never tells us. But as far as Joseph is concerned, he's somebody who was almost murdered, sold as a slave, rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar, gets thrown into jail, escapes miraculously from jail, some before Pharaoh. He's now the viceroy of Egypt. I mean, this is a person that has gone through so much. How could they recognize him? He's a completely different. Why would they imagine this could possibly be Joseph? They're in the same place. They're the same shepherds, presumably. Nothing's happened to them as far as we know. Yes, you have the story of Judah and Tamar, which is an important story. But, it's, but from an external standpoint, nothing has really changed. Joseph is dressed like an Egyptian. He's wearing Egyptian clothing, Egyptian wife, part of the court, in charge of this tremendous job to feed the world. So, of course, how could they probably, possibly uh, recognize Joseph? Who um, recognizes Rabbi? them? Rabbi? And now, now Rabbi, Joseph can I remembers just suggest the dreams something? he had dreamt. And Rabbi? Yes? Um, uh, it's, it's interesting um, when people um, question how could they not have recognized him, and you've just given um, uh, a, a wonderful response, but even in modern day police practices, um, when they're looking for anyone, whether it's a victim or a perpetrator or whatever, they often, in fact, in most cases, have police artists um, aging the person that they're looking for, even if it's only a matter of a few months or years. And here we're talking uh, 17 to 20 years, and he went as a youth, and he's now a, a mature adult. So it's it's actually uh, considered, I think, de rigueur, um, not to be able to recognize someone, not only because of circumstances being different, but because of the rigors of, of years. Right. I mean, they've also grown 20 years now. Right? But the point is that... Um, but they've stayed in one place emotionally right. and physically, whereas, as you say, he has not. Right. That's my point. Right. Exactly. He's, he's in a completely different place. Uh, they would never imagine... What would they even imagine such a thing? It's beyond. Right. And now we're right. told in verse number nine that Joseph remembered the dreams. He remembers the dreams. Um, Point to the Ramban, you have to say he remembers the dreams initially as well, I presume. But it's interesting that over here, the Torah uses the word to remember. Joseph remembers the dreams. And this is a person about whom the Torah has told us, Joseph told us, I have forgotten my father's house, Menashe. And suddenly now, and this is part of the, one of the critical moments, he suddenly is faced, he stands in front of his brothers. And suddenly he, he can't forget. He remembers the whole story. He didn't want to forget his past, but suddenly he can't forget his past. And he's living in a land, I would add, 
a land of forgetfulness, a land of the Saramashkin. Mitzrayim is a place where people don't have a memory. And now Joseph suddenly is remembering, which also marks him as different in some sense from, from his environment, his present environment. So now he makes an accusation. He says to them, you are Miraglim spies. The wrote it, he says two things. It sounds to me, number one, you're, you're, you're spies. That's what you do. You're a bunch of spies. And in particular, you have come to see strange term, to see the nakedness of the land. So the commentaries understand nakedness being things that usually are, are, usually are, are concealed. You know, every country has its places that secret, you know, there are secrets, maybe where the fortifications are, who knows? And um, those things are kept secret for, you know, for security. And you've come though to uncover, to uncover or reveal the secrets of the land. Here, it's interesting that you are Miraglimatem. Um, perhaps there's even a reference to, to what the way Joseph sees the brothers. In other words, the brothers, caused Joseph's sale. As far as they know, maybe they caused his death. And then they went back to their father. They sent back, they spoke to their father. They sent back a note to their father trying to, you know, to uh, conceal what had happened. And before, I'm wondering whether the Rotet Ervatsa Aretz Batem is not a reference to the fact that when they meet Joseph, they, they, they take off Joseph's coat. Given the fact that the Torah has connected us back to the sale of Joseph. Uh, so now Joseph's accusation, right? Joseph's accusation will address what the brothers did to Joseph. He says, You are spies, and in particular, you've come to, 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 to uh, reveal something that's concealed. Now, what that is, we don't know yet. But I didn't make the reference yet to the story of, of Joseph's own coat. The brothers say, no, my Lord. Your servants have come just to purchase, I would say, to purchase food. We are all the sons of one man. That is to say, it's not a group of 10 that somehow, 10, 10 conspirators. We're not here because we're 10 conspirators. We're not a band. We're not a cell. We happen to be brothers. We're 10 brothers. 10 of us are brothers. We are honest people, I would say. Kenim. In modern Hebrew, kenut is integrity. Well, you have a we're not miraguim. And here, the word kenim and miraguim come together. They're opposites. Because miraguim, spies, from the word rego. They go around from one place to the next to get information. So miragel can mean to spy. It can also mean to, to, to tell stories. To tell, right? In other words, go around telling stories, spies, misinformation, disinformation. That's that's a little gale. Cain, right? What, what does Kainut mean? What is what Vatikon, Nachon? What does Nachon mean in biblical Hebrew? It means to be in one place, to be firm. So the right. word Lurageo and 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 Nachon actually are actually opposites. Right? Uh, tikon means it to be firm, to be fixed, to be set in one place. But tikon ma'chutom ma'od, 
the kingdom was was set up, was affirmed, was fixed. No, we're not Miraguim. It's the opposite. We are Anashim Kainim. But are they Anashim Kainim? Are they honest people? Certainly in the past, they were not very honest with their father. They weren't honest with the story of Joseph. They claim to be Kainim. That's the claim over here. So Joseph says to them, No, no, he says, no, I insist you've come here to, you're searching for something in the land, for something that's concealed, something that's hidden. You're trying to find something that's hidden. The brothers say, no, no, by your rule, they talk more. By your rule, no, we're just a family. In fact, there are 12 of us. We're 10. The youngest one is back home with his, with his father, with our father. And one is missing. They don't say dead because they don't know he's dead. They never sold him. He was pulled out of a pit. He's missing. And now by now Joseph says to them, Who And the question is, what does verse 14 mean? So I'll tell you what I think it means. And the Midrashim play with this in a different way, but I think the shot is like this. The core idea is found in a different context in the Midrash and the story. But I think what it means is this. He made two accusations. He says, first of all, you've come to reveal that which is concealed. No, 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 it's not the case. We're just 12 brothers coming to get food. Henna here, one is back with the father and one is missing. Says Joseph, who So some interpret, no, no, what I said is right. Not, not what you're saying. What I said is correct. The thing that I said before that you are spies is true. That's one way to read it. But I thought it meant something else. I thought it meant who means that's what I mean. When I said that you are spies, that's what I had in mind. You are here to search. You said one is missing. You must be here to search for that missing brother. That's why you've come. This person is, has a hidden identity in the land of Mitzrayim. And the reason you came down is to, to, to reveal that which has been concealed. Now, the, the irony here is, is actually supreme because that's exactly what they're not doing. It's exactly what they should be doing. Let's put it that way. Of course, that's exactly what they should be doing because if it's a nenu, which is what it is, a yellow a nenu, that's what Ruben said. A yellow a nenu. Okay, if he's a nenu, if he's missing, then the obligation will be to find him. And that's a word that will appear and reappear in the Joseph story. And it appeared earlier already. The little tiny Hebrew word to himself to find. Judah and Tamar, did you find the woman? I couldn't find her, right? You couldn't find her. Let, let her keep the staff and the seal and the coat. I, I sent you. You couldn't find her. The next verse, she was brought out. A different word, but it sounds the same. It's a similar. So the good soul to find out, to find out the truth, to search, to make an effort to, 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 to make things right. It's what Judah initially doesn't want to do. He sends someone else to do it and for one day. If he really cared about staff and seal and cult, symbols of leadership, he would never stop searching. He makes a, a kind of perfunctory search. And then when, when the, she's, she's not found after one day, he blames the other guy. I sent it, you couldn't find it. So she's the one, Tamar gets Judith to take responsibility. She presents him with, 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 with the staff and the seal and the cult. Now, now, Mr., now you tell me what, what, what the story is. But in the case of the, of the brothers, right, they don't search for Joseph. 
um, they say to their father Jacob, what do they say to Jacob at the end of chapter 37? They send the coat to their father. Zot Matsanu, we found this. We found this. We found this father. Do you recognize it? But what they don't do is say to themselves, hey, if he's a Nenu, why don't we at least make it try to find him? Why don't we search at least in the vicinity? They don't. And when they come down to Mitzrayim and they know they saw the traitors going down to Egypt. So he might be, okay, chances of finding Joseph are remote, but there's no attempt. So the point is the accusation is it's unbelievable. You're not here to get food. <laughs> you're here to find, you're here to find someone who's missing. That's why you're here. Which of course is what they should be doing. But of course, exactly what they're not doing. And this will explain something else in the story. And I'll stop for a moment and take comments and questions, but it explains something else in the story in chapter 42. It explains why after Joseph, when we'll get back to this in a minute, says to them, you know, he accuses them and I'm gonna test you to see if it's true. Why don't you send somebody back to bring that younger brother? And if you bring the younger brother back, I'll see you speak the truth. And if not, you're lying with the dire consequences. He puts them in a jail for three days, Mishmar, Shloshet Yamim. We'll get altered to the audio, reminds us of the earlier story. And then Joseph says, I changed my mind. You can all go back and take the food, but one of you has to stay here as a hostage. So he takes one hostage. And then, beginning in chapter 42, verse number 21, the brothers speak to each other. Let's just for a moment look at verse 21 of chapter 42. We'll go back to the verses that we skipped. One brother said to the other, Aval, in truth, Aval means in truth, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, concerning Joseph. We saw his suffering. When he pleaded with us, we paid no heed. They heard the cries, but they didn't care about the cries. They, they heard the cries. They're saying they heard the cries. The Roshamanu, we didn't respond. We didn't respond to the cries. Therefore, therefore, this 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 uh, this grief has now come to us because of our failure to to hear and to respond to Joseph's cries. And what's interesting is, why is this what they're thinking of? In other words, this, what does one thing have to do with anything? What's, Joseph says you're a bunch of spies, etc. But it does, if, if we assume that actually what he's saying to them is, you aren't here to find to get the food. Now, you have, you have a small ulterior purpose. You're going sneaking around the land to find somebody. Maybe a fellow conspirator, maybe part of your little cell, who knows? So that would make sense. And the brothers say, you know something? If Joseph weren't down here in the first place, someplace, or might be down here, none of this would have happened. And we, in fact, are guilty. is a confession over here. We are guilty. So I'm just saying that reading this verse makes a heck of a lot of sense if we presume that what the accusation is, is someone else in your group that's missing and you're here to, 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 to link up with him. Someone whose identity is a secret. Um, now, 
just as an aside, before we jump back, before I take comments and questions and jump back to the verses that we skipped, I just saw something else. You know, again, there's a, an apologetic strain. And we understand why there's an apologetic strain in the story over here. It's a, I mean, it's about attempted murder and, and, and slavery and sending your brother to slavery, it's kidnapping, whatever. So we understand why there would be <clears throat> an apologetic strain over here. But I noticed <coughs> someone who makes the following point. Well, one of the claims that's made is that the brothers somehow decided, the brothers decide in the earlier chapter that Joseph is actually guilty. Either, either he's guilty because he slanders them or whatever it is, endangers them. <coughs> they convene a kind of trial and they sentence Joseph to death. And the claim that's made, it's not my claim, but the claim that's made is that somehow, and they're not wrong about that. And so that over here, what they say, we know something, uh, what, what bothers them is not the sale itself, but what bothers them is, I'm not making this claim, but I, I've read this. You, if you study this, you'll come across this, this, this thought uh, within certain circles. What bothers them is that they were sort of, that they were not sympathetic to his cries as opposed to the actual sale. I mean, I must say, personally, I think that's crazy. And that's, 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 so it does not mean that at all. Um, as the very next verse says, when Ruben said, behold, his blood is being sought, come to Mohinei So of course not. Of course, that's a, to me a wild thought and no basis in the text on any level. But it is interesting that this statement that we are guilty, we saw his suffering, when he pleaded with us, and we paid it no heed, is what they remember, is what they singled out. So what do we make of that? And it's interesting that the Torah in the initial story never says this. They throw Joseph in the pit. They're sitting down. He has no, he has no water. They're sitting a distance away. They're having all meal, you know. You know, pass the meat, pass the lamb chops, whatever it is, you know. They're having a whole big meal, and he's there not so far away, apparently they can hear his cries, and he has no water, does not speak well for the brothers, but what's interesting is that what they remember, and the point I would emphasize is that people, people make mistakes, people do some terrible things, um, but the severity of the crime does not always match up with the with the kind of moral state of the person, um, I, the example I always like to give is the story of David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba is a story of murder, adultery, and murder, basically, and that's the story. Now, it's not that David woke up one morning and said, "I want to kill Uri and, and, and grab his wife." He didn't say that. He's, for whatever reason, home from wars, walking, walking the roof, walking the walls, you know what I mean? Sees this beautiful woman, summons her, sleeps with her, whatever, sends her back home. As far as he's concerned, the story's over. The husband's off in war. No one will ever know the difference. And there's a complication. She's pregnant, etc. So, and then he doesn't want to kill Uriah either. He summons Uriah from the battlefield, sends him home to his house. No one will ever know who the actual father is. It's going to solve his problem. No bloodshed. It doesn't work out because Uri is a stubborn guy and refuses for whatever reason to go home, probably because of his nobility. In any event, and then David says, what choice do I have? 
can't have this child with a, with a kind of alternate father if I'm the king of Israel. That's not good for the kingship. So he decides to get rid of Uriah. He's going to have Uriah killed by somebody else. And what does he do? He hands Uriah a note, a sealed note, bring it to the general. The note basically, we can reduce the note to two words, kill me. He has Uriah carry his own death warrant. And when you read the story, you say to yourself, I say, I can understand the adultery. I can even understand that he doesn't want to kill this guy. He's trying his best. There's no justification here, don't get me wrong. But giving him the note? What person does that? Who gives the guy his own death warrant? And one of his best soldiers, I would add. So the point is, giving him a note. Somebody say, where does it say it's awesome? Where does it say you can't do that? Maybe it doesn't say it. But what, what kind of human being behaves that way? So in other words, that's a story in which the giving of the note actually speaks volumes. And the same thing is true over here, of course. In the case of Joseph, it's, it's, it's attempted murder. And then they're thinking maybe they'll sell him, which is also a capital crime in the Torah. But what they remember is something else, actually. How can someone sit down and eat a meal, eat a nice meal, when a few feet away there's someone inside a pit who has no water who will die of thirst? What human being behaves that way? That's what they remember. That's for them is the crime over here. I'm not saying that the other stuff is validated. Of course not. But what, what speaks to, to, to them, and I think to us, exactly what they said. This sorrow, we are suffering now because we are people who, who couldn't hear the other guy suffering. We didn't hear the suffering. Now we'll come back to this verse when we resume because the Torah then has the word Loshamanu, which is found in chapter 42, verse number 21. Uh, the Torah will play with that. Well, let me just take one more verse. I'll show you this. Look at the next verse. Chapter 42, verse, verse 20, verse, verse 22. And we'll stop with this one. Vayan Ruvain Then Ruvain speaks up. This is wonderful. This is wonderful here. Hello, Amarti Alechem Reymar. Did I not say to you, saying, do not sin against the, 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 young, the young boy, the child? and you didn't listen. And behold, his blood is now sought. It's a wonderful verse uh, for the following reason. First of all, we notice immediately, this is the second verse in a row that the word Shema appears. In the first verse, the brothers said to each other, why is this happening to us? Why are we suffering? Because we heard his cries, Veloshamanu. We pay no heed. We heard them, but we pay no heed to them. Now Ruvain speaks up. Saying, Three times the Torah has the word leymar. He said, saying, I said, saying. And what did he say? As if he's quoting what he said. He said, I told you, do not sin against the child. Question, did he actually say that? He said nothing of the sort, did he? He said nothing like that at all. Not in, not in the reported speech of chapter 37. He said something different. He said, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into the pit, right? And then the Torah says, thinking to himself. He thought, I'm going to pull him out of the pit and send him back to his father. He intends to save Joseph. But he certainly didn't say that to them. He said quite the opposite. He said, let's not kill him with our own hands. 
Let him die of thirst in a pit, is what he says. Let him die. We won't be killing him. We just cause his death. That's what he said to them. He never said, I'll don't sin against the, the child. It is true that, he, that his thinking is he's a yelling because when he goes back to the pit, when he hears the brothers thinking about, sell, about selling him, he wants to save Joseph. He goes back to the pit. A yelled, a nano, the, the child, the baby is missing, the yelled is missing. It is true. That's what he's thinking, but he didn't never said it. Let's start with that. And the second point is something else about Ruve that this one little verse picks up the self centeredness of Ruve. I told you, he says, not to do it. And you didn't listen to me. The brothers are confessing we didn't hear the cries of the oppressed, of the one who was suffering, of the one crying out from the pit. And Ruvain says, and I'll tell you something else you didn't hear. You didn't hear me. When I, so when Ruvain goes back to the pit, the boy is missing. So there's a self-centeredness to Ruvain. And there's not an understanding how to take responsibility because what he should have said was obviously, listen, we don't kill our brother. You don't like him, I don't like him. Nobody can stand the kid. He's a youngster, whatever. Let's say hello, goodbye, send him home. That's what he should have said. That's what he actually probably wants to say on some level, but that's not what he says. And now we have the second verse in a row, the Torah manages with just a few words to pick up something about Ruvain. And of course the next verse is, and they didn't know what does Shomea mean over here? You know, he hears the words, he's right with them. They don't know that he's Shomea, that he understands. Lishmoa doesn't mean, can mean to hear. Lishmoa can mean to accept. And Lishmoa can mean to understand. Right. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, certainly does not mean hero Israel. Whatever O means, I don't know. Doesn't mean to hear. Means either to accept or to understand. One of those two. But it doesn't mean to to hear the words. Shema Yisrael, understand, perceive, understand, or accept. Accept God upon yourselves. That that's possible. So here we have three verses in a row with the word Shema, and now we have a fourth verse with the word Shema. What does Joseph do? He turns aside and cries. When we resume, we'll talk about Joseph's crying. He returns to them, and he says he's going to take one of them hostage. Which one does he take hostage? He takes Shimon hostage, doesn't he? Shimon, against Shema. Why does he take Shimon hostage and not another brother? And the answer is, there's two answers, but I'll just say one briefly. The brief answer is very simply. He hears that Reuben wanted to save him. Reuben's the oldest. Normally, you would take the oldest one. But the oldest one actually says, I told you not to do it. You didn't listen to me. So he's not going to take Ruvain hostage. So he takes the second one hostage. The second one is Shimon. That's the simple answer. There's, a, there's another answer, though, about Shimon. Who was Shimon in the, in, the, in, the, in the narratives? And that's a longer conversation. Who was Shimon? There's no doubt that Shimon and Levi, the two hotheads, were certainly part of the conspiracy. The main people want to kill Joseph. Because you know that Ruvain doesn't, and we know that Yehuda says, let's sell him. And Yehuda's son number four. So son two and three, Shimon and Levi, the two people killed, who destroyed the Shrem, are presumably the two co-conspirators, the main leaders in the, in the plot to kill Joseph. 
So we take Shimon and there's more to it. So let me just summarize what I have and we'll take uh, comments or questions. <laughs> we have here the beginnings of the story of Joseph and his Joseph meeting his brothers. And what we've seen in terms of Joseph, one question that the Ramban raises and every reader raises it, why is Joseph doing all this? The Ramban has a particular take on it in terms of the dreams. But then when Joseph first meets his brothers, on one hand, on one hand, he, uh, he wants revenge, I would say, or he wants to call it justice, if you don't like the word revenge. They were Vayit Nakru, and he's Vayit Nakerahem. Joseph was in jail in the Mishmar. Joseph was in the jail, the Torah called the Mishmar in chapter 40, and he's going to place them in the Mishmar. We'll get back to this. What they did to him, he's going to do to them. Part of that is, whatever Joseph's motives may be, part is, in biblical law, an eye for an eye. That is to say, what you give is what you get. So it's, it's fair, actually, that they be punished in exactly the same way that they inflicted harm upon somebody else. And Joseph is the, is, the, is, the, is the medium to do that. On the other hand, what we have over here is the first time we see that, maybe not the first time, but we see that when Joseph hears that one of the brothers says, I told you not to harm the, the, the young boy, he cries. And this is not the last time Joseph will cry. He cries several, several more times. And we are reminded of the story in chapter 37 when the Ish says to Joseph, what are you looking for? And Joseph said, I'm searching for my brothers. There's a part of Joseph, as much as he says he wants to forget, there's a part of Joseph, at least once he meets his brothers, that, that suddenly remembers. And this will carry through to the end of the uh, the end of the book. So there's a lot ahead of us. We're in the middle of this amazing story. And when we continue, it'll be to understand the Joseph story in and of itself, and then to understand its connections, multiple connections to the rest of the book and why it is a, an appropriate ending to the great book of Breshit. Okay, let me stop at this point and take comments or questions. Um, I speak see up. A, yep. I see a couple of hands. I'm going to start with Jennifer, then go to the things in the chat. Uh, Jennifer. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. This I always just drink this in. Question. Um, do you, have you given any thought to, uh, and you've already thought so much, so, but I keep seeing a little parallels uh, in various ways between the this and when Esau and Yaakov meet after all that time. Uh, yes, and, we'll, we'll be discussing that, of course. That's okay. There are all kinds of parallels between Ace of Yaakov on one hand and Joseph and the brothers on the other. Um, I'll just when they meet one. again. There are many, many, many parallels, but I'll mention one that I, maybe I mentioned before. And that is that when Rivka is expecting twins, she goes to seek out God, a tailor for Hashem. And the God of the Oracle says to Rivka, there are two nations inside you. And then the oracle says, One Rome is a nation. One nation shall be stronger than the other. The Rav, the Avot Sa'ir, the greater shall serve the lesser. You could also read the lesser shall serve the greater. Okay. But it means there's going to be a rivalry between them. That's the, that's the oracle's message to, uh, to Rebecca about her two children, about the twins, Asaph and Yaakov. Now, when Joseph has his first, we first meet Joseph, what's the first dream he has? It plays off that. He says, <laughs> Right? It's the same word. 
In the case of Jacob and, jo- and, and, and Esau, it's Ra'om Mira'om. In the case of Joseph, it's Agum Mira'um. And Joseph makes it very clear. Right? Your Agum, Agumot, I guess it is Agumim, are going to circle around and bow down to mine. So there it's Agum Mira'um Yemats, one could say. That's just the very beginning, but there are multiple parallels, as would be expected, between Esau and Yaakov on one end and Joseph and the brothers on the other. What's important to remember, though, critical to remember, is this: that in the case of Esau and Yaakov, what Esau and Yaakov, what Yaakov wants to accomplish with Esau is, what might say, peaceful coexistence. You know, Esau has his life; Esau should should live and be well. And Yaakov should live and be well, and optimally, Esau should be live and be well as far away as possible from Yaakov, because they can't actually, they can never merge, they can never be together. They're just radically different, but each one has their own blessing. Esau has a blessing in the here and now, Yaakov blessing for the future, and optimally, they two can get along, and there's no rivalry between them. They're just two separate blessings, you know, but they can never actually coexist. In the case of Yosef and the brothers, it's exactly the opposite. Jacob's dream about building the bayit, the inclusive structure, we need Joseph. Without Joseph, there is no inclusive structure. So you can't just say, let's get along with Joseph and and goodbye. That doesn't work. They've got to find a way to incorporate Joseph. And that's not so simple because fundamentally the brothers, even after all is said and done, don't actually trust him. So that's the the question. How do we include Joseph in in, in in the family? as a central part of the family, that's a longer conversation. That's one of the main themes actually, but there are multiple references to, I mentioned one, there are many other references in the Joseph narrative allusions to the Ace of Yaakov story. We'll get to that. That's a very important point. Uh, who else? Um, just two things I wanna highlight in chat that came up. Um, Neva points out, it's also the, this was, I. Not entirely sure what this is in reference to. It's also the truth. Ultimately, the brothers came to find Yosef and set in motion the destiny of the Israelites. I mean, going down to Mitzrayim is part of the covenant of destiny. That's why I said, that's why it's B'nai Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael. The Torah shifted it to B'nai Yisrael because it's a way of highlighting critical moments. And this is a critical moment. The brothers meeting Joseph is the beginning of the whole process of coming down to Egypt. So for sure, that is certainly the case. What else? I, I was referring to that moment where uh, you you said, um, yeah, that's what I said. You came to find the missing brother. You are spies, and it's, it's sort of ironically, indeed, that it that they did they didn't know it, but that's what they were coming for. Right, in the sense of sky, but why say that the, the spy is the one you send into the land before before the troops go in. So in that sense, it's certainly true that they are spies in that sense. They don't know it. I'm not sure if Joseph means that either, but, but, but we, the reader, know it. That it's true that these are the first, the first cohort coming into the land, land of Egypt, prior to the entire family coming in. So in that sense, it's certainly the case. They are the, 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 the first advance, the first one you send in first to see what the land is like, and then you, you go in afterwards. Right, so one more comment here? Uh, Debbie? Uh, yeah. Um... Many years ago, um, Rabbi Joel Cohen pointed out a totally different take on the spies, that um, when Yosef accuses them of being spies, uh, if he had put 
if he puts somebody in jail and he accuses them of spies, then people would be less likely, they would be um, inhibited from asking questions because if you are a spy, you are likely to ask a lot of questions. So people would be suspicious of them from asking questions. If he wants to stop them from asking questions to inquire about him, if he's worried about that, um, then to accuse them of being spies would in effect silence them. And then they couldn't ask questions about it. <laughs> right, I mean, you're presuming that, which I don't presume, the presumption is that I mean, it's certainly possible that even though it's something which is a fantastic idea that they would think this is Joseph or they would make an attempt to find him. Which that they would be suspicious. Say, but at the text, I don't see that whatsoever. Uh, but it's not beyond the possibility that even though something is completely fantastic, it doesn't mean people, people don't, don't have those thoughts. We all have our fantasies, you know what I mean? So it could be that Joseph is concerned that they, he recognizes them. Maybe he is worried they're gonna recognize him and maybe he's, speaking to them in a way to prevent them from recognizing him, even though from a logical standpoint, it makes no sense. But that doesn't mean that Joseph, what goes on inside people's heads, doesn't always correspond to some, any, any kind of objective reality, especially right. when it comes to family members. So it's certainly possible, and it's possible that Joseph is trying to, Joseph's concerned to find him. He just doesn't want to be found, actually. He also wants to maintain his identity as the Egyptian viceroy. That is possible. Certainly a possibility. Um, I'll stop at this point. Looking forward to continuing with all of you and many more people who want to come. One, of course, can come, even if one has not been here to these classes, because, you know, stuff will tiny review and we'll move forward together. Uh, okay, we do have an, a lecture this evening. Uh, and I'll let Kayla speak about other stuff coming up, but we have the Alexander. Uh, um, the, the Bohm lecture tonight, we have actually Ariel Mays is speaking, it's terrific. Uh, it's either seven or eight o'clock, I don't remember. Kayla, why don't you tell people about it? All right, we have, there's two upcoming things I'd like to highlight. The first is with Drisha. Coming up tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern is our annual Bohm Memorial Lecture, where Rabbi Dr. Ariel Evan Mace will be speaking on the topic of As a Deep River Rises, Jewish Law, Theology and environmental ethics. If this sounds up, if this sounds interesting to you, please do consider joining and you can sign up at slash classes. And if you want to learn more with Rabbi Silber, if you are in the Upper East Side this coming this coming Shabbat, Rabbi Silber will be speaking at Orachaim. And to find out more, uh, Zella, can you let me know? Can you remind me where people can go to find more information about this? Uh, it's actually on the uh, Drisha sent out an announcement, but you can go on Orachayim website or contact me or whatever, and I'd be happy to pass on the information. Rabbi Silver will be speaking Friday night and on Shabbat morning. Thank you. It'd be great. <laughs> and if you and if you have a question that, for Rabbi Silver that we did not get to in class today, then please feel free to reach out to Drisha at thesilber at drisha.org. Thank you everyone for joining for this month and for continuing to learn with Rabbi Silver. Okay, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Take care everyone.